Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. There was a moment in the not-too-distant past when one scientist told an audience what could happen, that polar ice caps could melt, leading to sea levels rising because of fossil fuel emissions that he said would contaminate the atmosphere. That moment was in 1959 when one man told assembled oil company executives what he foresaw. Among the executives was someone in charge of the first company to work a field in the oil sands in Alberta. Author Jeff Dembicki has tied together the Canadian part of the tale of decades of disinformation and denial that's brought the world to where it is today. And a note, he insists there are reasons for hope. Our conversation coming up. We'll also do our annual check-in of the year and weather, give you some ideas for how to cut down on all the waste the holiday makes, and yes, our gift to you, a package of good news about the climate in 2022. Welcome to What on Earth, I'm Laura Lynch. Disinformation, the deliberate spread of false or misleading information is so prevalent lately, it's become a bit of a buzzword. Climate journalist Jeff Dembicki is no stranger to it. His book, The Petroleum Papers Inside the Far-Right Conspiracy to Cover Up Climate Change, follows the money, taking a deep dive into documents that paint a stark picture. One of companies and the think tanks they fund obfuscating the facts about global warming and politicians failing to push forward climate action that could have set a different course, not just in the U.S., but also here in Canada. Recently, the book was selected as one of the Washington Post's top 10 books of 2022. Jeff Dembicki, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thanks for agreeing to come on. There is a lot of writing out there about how people and groups with vested interests in fossil fuels have purposely created confusion about climate science, and often largely, though, in the United States. And what you do here is you refocus things in Canada, and in particular on Alberta's oil sands. Why did you do that? I was reading a lot of really fascinating investigative reporting a few years ago that showed how big oil and gas companies like Exxon had studied climate change internally and then buried the science and instead tried to convince the public that climate change isn't real. And I knew that there was a big Canadian angle to that story because Exxon was one of the companies involved in really helping getting the oil sands going in Alberta. And so my starting point for doing the book was to figure out how big a role does Canada play in this story of climate disinformation. And what did you find out? So what I found by going through hundreds and hundreds of documents produced by companies who operate in the oil sands is that Canada plays an absolutely central role in the story of oil companies spreading deliberate falsehoods about climate change. And this story goes all the way back to the 1950s. 
So early on in the book, you place readers in New York City in 1959 at an event called Energy and Man. What was so significant about that evening in particular, especially when it comes to the development of the oil sands? So this is one of the most interesting things that I learned through researching this book. And basically in 1959, the oil and gas industry decided to celebrate its 100th year birthday in New York City. So all sorts of VIPs from the industry were there and they gathered at Columbia University. One of the keynote speakers at this event was a scientist named Edward Teller. And he's famous as one of the inventors of the atomic bomb. So Teller goes up in front of the room and he says, you know, I've been researching the threat of nuclear war and I've come to the conclusion that there's a global threat which could pose even bigger risks to humanity. And it's called the greenhouse gas effect. And so Edward Teller leads the room through what is fairly like avant-garde science at the time. He explains how when you pull oil and gas from the ground, burn it in a car engine, it releases emissions into the atmosphere. These could change the climate of the earth, um, eventually melting the polar ice caps and possibly one day flooding a whole bunch of coastal cities, including New York. This is 1959. (laughs) This is 1959. It's very very early days. It's decades before the public knows about any of this stuff. And, And why Canada is so central to this is because up there on stage, right next to Edward Teller, is an oil executive named Robert Dunlop. And so he's head of a company called Sun Oil. Four years after this event, Robert Dunlop and Sun Oil are up in northern Alberta helping create the very first commercial oil sands operation. And this basically is what gets the entire industry going in Canada. And Sun Oil, years later, changes its name and becomes Suncor, which is now the most prominent oil and gas company in Canada. All right. If you've set the scene well, I imagine his talk was met with a lot of at least raised eyebrows. But but there's a, there's other players in this story, and I'm referring to the Koch brothers or Koch Industries. They, they feature prominently in the book. Can you tell me a little bit about who they are in this story? So the Koch brothers made their fortune essentially on oil and gas infrastructure. And then they expanded that into a massive industrial empire, which made them some of the richest people in the entire world. Now, David Koch died a few years ago, but him and his brother used a big part of their fortune, um, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, to try to influence the politics of the United States and pull it really in quite a far-right libertarian direction. And so a big part of that political campaign was trying to convince the American public that climate change isn't real or that if it is, we we don't need to worry about it because it won't be that bad. And this happened to line up quite conveniently with the company's own business interests, um, which are very exposed to any sort of climate change regulations. And so in, in the story of climate disinformation, the Cokes are, are some of the main players. But what, what I found really shocking was the extent to which the Coke business empire is financed by oil and gas from Canada. 
And so for me, having grown up in Alberta, to realize that my home province was helping fund this massive climate denial machine, um, it was it was just sort of shocking to me. And and I wanted to to research all I could to learn about the impacts of this machine, how it had affected our ability to fight the climate emergency. Okay. One of the other sources that you're turning to here are internal documents from the Canadian fossil fuel company, Imperial Oil. They date back to the 1970s. And I'm wondering what story those documents told you about what that company knew about global warming. So Imperial Oil was one of the second big companies to get involved in the creation of the oil sands in Alberta. Imperial Oil is is owned by Exxon. And like Exxon, it's been doing research into climate change for years and years and years, long before this became a large public issue. And so I started looking through all of these internal documents that were produced by Imperial Oil about what it knew about climate change and how it was responding to this information internally. And one of the documents that really jumped out at me is from 1993, and it explained how to fix the climate emergency. Imperial was was studying this thoroughly at the time, and it was so far ahead in terms of its understanding of climate change that it was looking at how do we get this emergency under control. And I, I can go into that document if you'd like. Yes, please. So I think this is one of the most shocking and disturbing things that I learned while researching this book. And, and specifically, I'm referring to this document from 1993, where Imperial Oil lays out several scenarios for how to fix climate change. And so at the time, Imperial hired consultants. They ran various models of things like carbon capture and storage, where you bury um, carbon dioxide underground, and also things like improving the efficiency of oil operations. But when Imperial Oil studied a carbon tax, which is a policy where you basically tax emissions across an entire economy, Imperial Oil determined that this could achieve quote-unquote approximate stabilization of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada. So essentially the company learned that um, we could stop climate change from getting worse and probably get the emergency under control. And so this was in the early 1990s. The public was just learning about the dangers of climate change. And here was Imperial figuring out how to fix this thing. So the company also learned that implementing this type of solution wouldn't have a huge impact on the economy. It might even be good for the national economy. And that's because policymakers would be getting so much tax revenue from taxing carbon that they could fund a major green infrastructure build out. And this would create all sorts of jobs and new industries across the economy. Imperial also learned that such a policy could be specifically bad for its own business interests in the Canadian oil sands. It might cause the company about a $900 million hit in terms of lost revenues. And so in this document I'm referring to, Imperial created a list of talking points that executives at the company should use when trying to speak about climate change solutions to people in media and government. And executives were told to portray those solutions as economically reckless 
or having uncertain environmental benefits. And in my opinion, this was a misrepresentation of what the company's own research on climate solutions showed. And so at this very early date, when we could have gotten the emergency under control and a leading oil company knew how to do it, instead, they tried to create delay and prevent these types of solutions from ever becoming reality. Now, fossil fuel companies, they, they lobby governments, that, and so do lots of industries. They lobby governments. What is different about companies like Imperial trying to, to essentially fight for their profits? I would agree that, that anyone who runs a company is looking out for the bottom line of that company. And as a society, that's something we've sort of just accepted and, and normalized. But the difference is with a company like Imperial or Exxon or Coke Industries or Suncor, their bottom line these days directly contradicts with our ability to live on a stable planet with a stable climate. And so if these companies continue to expand their operations as they have been doing, this could help lock in emissions which take us several degrees of warming above what we've ever experienced in human history. And we're already starting to see the impacts of that in terms of out of control wildfires and freak storms and all sorts of chaos. And so these companies, when they lobby on behalf of preserving their existing business model, I think that goes beyond what we normally expect from a company and it imperils people all over the entire planet. And that's what I wanted to highlight in this book. Okay, Jeff, I just want to play you a clip. Um, this is from a CBC radio newscast from 1990. The Minister of the Environment says the government will introduce national standards to control industries that heavily pollute our air and water. Lucien Bouchard says the government wants to make Canada the, worst, the world's most environmentally friendly country by the year 2000. Okay, blast from the past. Then progressive conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's government published a green plan which proposed a number of measures to address global warming that it recognized being caused by greenhouse gas emissions. And that plan even sought out the idea of studying putting a price on carbon pollution. What happened to it? I think that plan is really interesting because it shows that when climate change was first really getting on the public's radar, it wasn't necessarily a right-left sort of political issue. There were politicians all across the spectrum who saw climate action as, as just sort of a common sense thing that would be good for the economy. What happened to that plan and, and to similar bipartisan efforts to address the crisis in U.S. and Canada is that they ran into this roar of disinformation that was put out by the oil and gas industry. So, for example, in the late 90s, the chairman of Imperial Oil was writing shareholder notes saying that there was no proven link between burning fossil fuels and climate change, and he was disputing the basic science. Exxon, meanwhile, was running full-page newspaper ads saying that there were so many uncertainties in climate science, we couldn't possibly come up with solutions that would get this thing under control. And Coke Industries, meanwhile, 
was pushing the idea that if you were a true conservative, you would never sign on to this liberal globalist conspiracy to control all of our consumption habits through green regulations. And so as, as a result of this push of disinformation, I think this actively undermined any sort of bipartisan political consensus around climate action and turned off a large part of the conservative base from ever wanting to take this problem seriously. And we've sort of been trapped in the legacy of that ever since. Okay, let's fast forward to another prime minister then, conservative prime minister Stephen Harper, who actually worked for Imperial Oil before entering politics. What does your your research reveal about the connection between Harper and his previous employer? What I would say about Stephen Harper is that when he was prime minister, he took an approach to climate science that was very similar to what Imperial Oil did. What I mean by that is is similar to Imperial Oil, the Canadian government had some of the best scientists in the world working on climate change, just as Imperial Oil had some of the best scientists trying to understand climate change internally throughout the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And so what Harper did when he came into power was he did everything he could to make sure that this world-class science produced by Canadian scientists never got seen by the public. He suppressed it. He made it harder for scientists to be interviewed by the media. And at the same time, Harper promoted climate change deniers to key positions in the federal government. In effect, he was mimicking an oil company response to climate change, but using the federal government to do so. He buried life-saving science, and he gave a huge national platform to people who said that the emergency isn't real. So it's not just Canadian politics, it's also American politics. Listen to this. Hi, I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House. And I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be Speaker. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. We need cleaner forms of energy, and we need them fast. If enough of us demand action from our leaders, we can spark the innovation we need. Go to WeCanSolveIt.org. Together, we can do this. Now, in this day and age, that sounds like something that's almost a parody of what reality is, but that (laughs) is from 2008. And we're hearing a Republican and a Democrat agreeing on actions needed to fight climate change. So what happened? Well, this, this is one of the things I really wanted to highlight in my book, which is we've had moments in recent history when sort of all the forces were lined up to get the big, bold, transformative change that we need to fix climate change. And 2008 was one of those moments You had Obama recently elected to the White House saying he was going to go big on climate action. You had Republicans and Democrats agreeing to work together, like you heard in that ad. And you even had prominent media figures like Rupert Murdoch saying he was going to use his News Corp media empire to push the idea that we need to take action on climate change. And let's just remind people Rupert Murdoch is uh, the man who owns Fox News. Exactly. So this is, this is quite an exceptional moment in history we're talking about. And a lot of the oil and gas companies in Canada were, were very nervous 
about what was happening in the United States and whether Obama would shut down the U.S. market for oil sands, which continues to be the most important market for the industry. And so what you saw in, in 2008, 2009, 2010 is all the oil and gas companies sort of making the most aggressive possible case that climate action is a bad idea. So you had, you know, huge tea party rallies in the United States funded and supported by Coke Industries attacking climate legislation as this sort of liberal conspiracy. You had companies paying for for ads in mainstream media questioning whether climate change is even real. Then you had the Stephen Harper government actively intervening in the United States to try to block climate policies that it saw as bad for the oil sands. And so, for example, in the early 2010s, there were diplomats working out of the Canadian embassy in Washington, D.C. They were working with oil and gas lobbyists, and they were fighting any sort of clean fuel law or climate law that could potentially restrict the market for oil sands. And, and I know this because I got access to hundreds of internal emails exchanged between some of these diplomats and oil and gas lobbyists, and they explain their strategy very, very clearly. And the ultimate impact of this big push was to blunt Obama's agenda to make sure that comprehensive U.S. climate legislation didn't pass and to destroy that political consensus that we saw in the, the ad with Nancy Pelosi. Newt Gingrich has since then said that that ad was one of the stupidest things <laughs> that he's ever done. And so I, I don't want listeners to feel super depressed about all of that. I want them to realize this was a moment when we really could have solved this thing or done a lot to fix climate change. And we have, we have more such moments and we experience them all the time. And really, it's, it's a few specific industries and companies that stand in the way of us doing that. I am really glad you said you don't want listeners to be depressed by this because it was kind of my next question because you're, you've seen how directly climate science has been muzzled. So, so what hope do you think readers can draw from the book? I think the hope that readers can draw from the book is sort of a clearer, more nuanced understanding of what the climate emergency actually is. Because for so long we've been given this idea that we're all equally responsible for this crisis. We all have to drive, so we burn gas. We all need to heat our homes, that releases emissions, and so we're all culpable. And if we're all equally responsible for this emergency, then nobody is actually responsible for it. And so what I wanted to show with this book is, is that actually, we have all the factors in place to address climate change really fast and to do it in a way that's not going to harm the economy. In fact, that will make the economy better. That will create all sorts of jobs and new industries. And really, it's just a few specific industries and companies that are standing in the way of that and trying to actively sabotage or delay the transition. So I think once you know that, it's, it's, it is kind of a, a depressing story, but it shows you that, you know, it's not impossible. 
there are all sorts of creative ways we could begin fixing this thing right away. Jeff Dembicki, such an interesting book. Thank you for uh, joining me to talk about it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Now, we did reach out to Imperial Oil for comment. We asked for its response to Jeff Dembicki's view that Imperial's talking points for executives in the 1990s misrepresented their own research into climate change. The company sent us an email, but it didn't respond to the question. Instead, it highlighted its current climate change plans, including, quote, growth in renewable fuels, next generation oil sands recovery technologies, and carbon capture and storage. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. The new year is barreling towards us, but we wanted to wrap up the old one with a look back at some climate wins from 2022. I'm presenting five good news stories for climate this year, as selected by our What on Earth team. And they're here to help share the news. So I feel like we might need some fanfare here. <laughs> okay, Catherine Rolfson is here to tell us about our first story. Hey, Laura. Okay, I like that fanfare, but I don't know. Is there a drum roll maybe or something? Just really up the energy. That's what I needed. Okay, story number one. So, Laura, just a few days ago, the International Energy Agency said the renewable power capacity is set to double by 2027. The IEA says the world will add as much renewable energy in the next five years as it did over the past 20 years. In fact, in the next two years, the IEA says renewables will overtake coal to become the world's largest source of electricity generation. There you go. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome. Now, the second story was big news back in August, and Kiernan Green is here to explain. Hi, Kiernan. Hello. Yeah, so last August, uh, the U.S. Senate passed a bill that includes $370 billion of new spending to lower emissions and speed up the green transition. We heard from Energy Innovations' Anand Gopal on the show. He'd crunched the numbers on the Inflation Reduction Act, and here's what he had to say. We found that despite the name of the bill having nothing to do with climate on it, at its heart, this bill is dramatically important for the United States in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, if you do the math correctly, it gets the Biden administration within two-thirds of its 2030 emissions reductions targets. All right, another bit of good news, Kiernan. Thank you. Story number three is one we first brought you back in January, and it speaks to the power of the public to influence policy. Molly Siegel's here to tell us more. Hi, Molly. Hi, Laura. This story happened in the Rocky Mountains of southern Alberta, an area known as the Eastern Slopes. The Alberta government had cancelled a policy dating back to the 1970s that protected the area from coal development. 
But when that happened, Albertans from different political views and backgrounds, they were speaking out loudly against that decision. Indigenous groups, fly fishers, ranchers, country musicians, and outdoor enthusiasts were all demanding protection for that area, largely because those very slopes are also their source of drinking water. And then in March, the Alberta government reinstated the policy protecting the area from mining. We reached Latasha Kafrobe, a member of the Blood Tribe and founder of the Nitsitapi Water Protectors. She's been fighting to prevent coal exploration and mining in the area. And this was her reaction to the news at the time. Um, the best way to describe it is cautiously optimistic. Um, it does not end all coal mining, but it definitely halts a lot of the development in some really intact ecosystems um, that are near and dear to my heart. These lands um, fall within the traditional and ancestral lands of the Nitsitapi or the Blackfoot Confederacy. So these are the lands that my ancestors have walked since time immemorial. Now, there is a little bit of a caveat here. The government decided to still go forward with four mining projects one of which is expected to move ahead in 2023. But for now, much of the eastern slopes are protected, and it's all thanks to the advocacy of Albertans. And there you go. Thank you, Molly. Thank you. And next, over to Europe for a story about air travel. Let's hear about that from Danielle Piper. Hello. Hi, Laura. So in early December, the European Commission approved France's plan to ban short-haul domestic flights for trips that can easily be taken by train. The ban will be reviewed after three years, and it only applies to three routes for now. But it could be expanded to include three more routes if rail service improves. It's the first ban of its kind, and Greenpeace UK calls it a baby step in the right direction towards reducing transportation emissions. I guess we're going to take the baby steps on the way to the final destination. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks, Laura. And speaking of transportation emissions here in Vancouver, a critical part of our healthcare system moved in the right direction this year, too. Rachel Sanders is here to tell us more. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. Yeah, so BC Emergency Health Services announced this year that they're testing out several electric emergency vehicles including what they say will be the first electric ambulance in Canada. We heard about all of this from paramedic David Hollingworth on our show in July. He'd been advocating to bring e-ambulances to BC for five years, and here's what he said when he heard about the plan. For me, it was a sense of relief and satisfaction. I feel like these electric vehicles could be the wedge that really breaks open a larger crack for some significant deployment of clean energy vehicles. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. That's great. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. And just for good measure, here is a bonus piece of potentially good news that happened just a few days ago. You might have heard about it. U.S. scientists announced a breakthrough in nuclear fusion research. For the first time after decades of effort, researchers were able to produce more energy from a fusion experiment than they put into it. Nuclear fusion has enormous clean energy potential. It produces no greenhouse gas emissions. There's still decades of work ahead to explore whether it's a viable climate solution. But scientists say the historic achievement is a hopeful step forward. So there you go. Some climate wins as we wrap 2022.
Okay, plenty to celebrate in 2022, and it's really important to remember that. But this year also brought its share of extreme weather, from storms to floods to wildfires and drought. Pretty scary. About 7 o'clock in the morning, we had full-on waves hitting the side of my house halfway up my dining room window. Devastating. Well, all of our equipment is gone. Have to rebuild right from the start. Once the river started flowing into our yards, the river water was stronger than the sandbags, stronger than anything, and so our houses are full of water. We've been without water for five weeks. Most other farms on the coast are watching everything die on the vine. So you can hear there how the extreme weather affected people across the country. And here with us now are three CBC meteorologists who are on the front lines of reporting on all of this. Johanna Wagstaff is based here in Vancouver. Christy Kleiman-Haga reports on Alberta and Saskatchewan. And Ryan Snodden covers Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to What on Earth? Thank you. Thanks. So happy to be here. Glad you're back for more. I want to start. I I just wanted to start by asking each of you for your standout weather events of the year. Last time we started off east to west, but Mm -hmm. this time we're going to reverse that. We'll start out here on the west coast. Johanna, go ahead. The one that really sticks out over the past 12 months is the historic drought you mentioned. I mean, it really was, you know, end of July, uh, right through to the end of October, we saw so little precipitation right across the province. Uh, You know, in some cases, this was an all-time longest drought for some locations. Sunshine Coast had to declare a state of emergency because of lack of water. So, you know, it wasn't just impacting people's homes and, you know, watering their garden. It was impacting businesses. Businesses had had to shut down and pause because of this lack of water. And we're still seeing the trickle-down effects months later. We still are in a snow uh, and and, and moisture deficit. And and like the heat dome and the flooding, I think it'll take months for us to truly realize what all of those impacts are. So it keeps on keeping on, unfortunately, out here. I don't think I've ever pined for rain so much in Vancouver after after all of that drought. Uh, Christy, what about you? Yeah, I mean, uh, dry here for a lot of the year, um, except for June, which was a little bit of a monsoon June. But uh, yeah, an interesting year, especially as we got into the fall in the prairies, because you usually expect things to cool down in a hurry once you get into, especially October. But this year, I mean, we were putting up Halloween decorations at 20 degrees in our t-shirts, and it just seemed uh, completely bizarre. It was the uh, quite a warm fall. November did have a cold spell, which kind of threw our average numbers out of whack. But uh, we had a record warm August in areas like Edmonton and October in Edmonton as well. Third warmest September on record. And again, it just, it felt like winter was never going to arrive. We had our latest frost on record in in, uh, Alberta's capital too, and and pretty warm uh, down towards Calgary. And then things kind of turned on a dime and it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ever since with well above seasonal and then really cold snaps. So it's kind of been all over the place, but definitely that warm fall was something that I don't remember seeing in Edmonton in recent history anyways. Okay, let's head down east and Ryan, let me guess, Um, maybe it was uh, Fiona? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, Fiona definitely was the the biggest uh, standout storm of the year. Fiona was... um, was was kind of the storm that um, we were all hoping wouldn't show up, but uh, but did, and uh, it was one that I obviously won't forget uh, in terms of forecasting in the lead up, um, and uh, seeing some of these numbers that uh, that were jumping off the charts, thinking 
man, I hope these forecast models aren't right. And then to see that those those numbers did come to fruition, you know, gusts uh, uh, to 179 kilometers per hour along the Northumberland shore and the the damaging uh, storm surge and and uh, and how much damage that that did obviously uh, not only in Port of Basque but across Prince Edward Island and the Northumberland shore of Nova Scotia and it was just uh, it was a storm that uh, obviously will will go down in history uh, as as we all know now with the the lowest barometric pressure ever recorded uh, on land in Canada and of course down on the ground um, below all of the numbers that you were quoting are, are the effects uh, on people and their buildings such damage and tragedy. On our show, we spoke to Stan Peach in Nova Scotia who saw his mother's house damaged by Fiona. I just want to play a clip of him talking about the aftermath. Oh, well, you know what? There's at least probably $10,000 in damage there. Uh, And and, and that's getting worse as we speak. God love her, you know. I told her that and she's like, you know what? I have money in the bank. I have $16,000 in the bank, and if I have to spend that to fix it, I'm guessing that's her life savings. You know, she's prepared to do that to get back into her home. Now, she, the, the house was rebuilt with the help of community as well. Um, the, the problem was that the house wasn't insured because re- insurers refused to, to do that for them. So I'm wondering what the scale of damage means for the future of, of the East Coast and the people who live there. Well, first and foremost, everybody certainly been phoning their insurance company since then to find out what kind of coverage they do have. Is flood included? Is is storm surge included? Uh, I know folks uh, in particular who have cottages or, or homes along the coast are, are now talking about upgrading their infrastructure, uh, getting huge boulders put in to try and keep future events from eroding their coastlines. And, you know, some folks who obviously were maybe thinking about that cottage, uh, that dream cottage, along the coastline, perhaps questioning that now, whether that is really a, a good place to be. And obviously with the future of planning and, and homes, uh, there's been talk here about whether homes need to be uh, to be upgraded in terms of, you know, wind standards and uh, in terms of their proximity to the coastline, how close they should be. Uh, all of these discussions are, are ongoing now uh, here in the Maritimes because Fiona was really a wake-up call that uh, we, again, we all knew was coming, but the phone rang and it rang uh, off the hook, uh, obviously, this fall. All right, Christy, let's come back to you. You've been watching the drought on the prairies, and you reported on the Peace Athabasca Delta. What's significant about what's happening there? Yeah, I had the opportunity to travel a little bit this uh, early in the fall up uh, towards the Peace Athabasca Delta, which is one of the second, uh, I think, the second largest freshwater delta in the world. So an incredibly important space for, you know, animals, migratory birds, but of course, the people that live there as well, uh, the First Nations communities in Fort Chippewan. And I had a chance to sit down with them and see how things are changing on the landscape there due to uh, industry upstream, the oil sands, hydropower, as well as now climate change which is exacerbating things and starting to take the front seat. So, I mean, what they've been seeing is an overall drying in the region, uh, lower flow rates in the rivers of the Peace Athabasca Delta during points in the year, which makes it really hard to access traditional territory, uh, less seasonal flooding, which means those perch basins in this kind of wetland landscape are starting to dry up and fill in with uh, with vegetation because they're not getting recharged in the same way. So it was, it was pretty humbling to see those many changes happening
happening and the fears that with climate change, more will happen. I mean, not only in the summertime, but in the winter too. Ice thickness starting to decline and and uh, shorter seasons with those ice roads that connect the community. So it was a really humbling look at um, you know the front line of climate change and and uh, and industry in the area and how their way of life will be a, a little more difficult going forward and something that they have to adapt to. All right, we have talked about drought. We've talked about uh, hurricane force winds and um, flooding and extreme rains and uh, wildfire. That's, that's it. the one we're missing. That's the, that's yeah. the one we're missing, <laughs> Joanna. Wildfire season was fluctuating a lot mm-hmm. this year. Um, what patterns were you noticing about what was happening out here with wildfire? It was a really late start to the season, which was a, a good thing, uh, you know, especially following the, the the summer where Linton burnt down. It was it was really nice to have a break. Uh, it was it was showery below seasonal across the province. So it was a late start. But then things turned very quickly once we got into that drought, once we got into warm temperatures. Uh, so we did see a back end intense wildfire season. And I think some of the patterns that, that I'm really seeing and talking to experts in the field is that you can no longer connect what's happening in one season to what's going to happen in the wildfire season. You know, a big snowpack used to mean uh, generally you're going to have that moisture available to keep the wildfires down. And now uh, things are just changing so quickly, those correlations don't exist. Uh, One positive, though, we saw far less human started wildfires. And, you know, people were, were reporting those fires much quicker. So most of our fires were started by lightning. And I think just the awareness and the public knowledge um, that has really come because of our historic wildfire seasons in recent years, that was front and center this year. So th- that was a positive. Good silver lining. There. Yeah. I did not know about that. Yeah. And maybe people just getting sick of all the smoke cleaning. I think that's around. part of it. Yeah. I think so. Ryan, um, <laughs> Nova Scotia just got hit by a pretty punchy, powerful <laughs> winter storm. Um, is, is there any correlation between the hurricane season and the winter season in North America? Certainly correlation uh, here on the East Coast in particular, um, you know, the warmer than normal sea surface temperatures, which seems like, I mean, we call them warmer than normal, but when they're happening year after year after year after year after year, um, they're becoming the normal. But uh, certainly uh, still based on the 30-year climate average, uh, you know, sea surface temperatures were warmer than average this year. Uh, That was something we were concerned about um, and ended up coming to uh coming you know into uh to be a factor when fiona worked its way northward into those warmer than average uh sea surface temperatures uh the system didn't transition to post-tropical as early as it would have uh it rolled over those warmer than average uh sea surface temperatures kept the the few the storm fueled for longer and ended up uh, with uh, with a stronger storm rolling here into the maritimes uh those sea surface temperatures are still warmer than average and those will continue to influence us here uh particularly across atlantic canada those warmer than average sea surface temperatures are, are keeping our falls uh, longer and are delaying our winters uh, and we're seeing that in the certainly in the white Christmas stats as well uh, white Christmases are becoming fewer and fewer all right Ryan um, try not to laugh because we're going to talk about BC's first yes. snowfall of the season earmuffs Ryan earmuffs <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that, ha- that came a few weeks ago it was a pretty big one by BC standards <laughs> cars got stuck drivers slid crashed into vehicles 
Johanna, how normal or abnormal was the amount of snowfall? Mm. And remind yeah. us what the amount was. You know, we saw 20 centimeters across Metro Vancouver. That's, that's huge. decent yes. for anywhere. That's pretty good. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, yes, that's, that's, that's a good amount. Thank you. Yeah, th- this is, uh, yeah, we, I kept saying anywhere in the country this would have been a big deal. So it, it was a lot of snow. But I think these events are a reminder that even as our climate warms, we will still have years like this one, which is a La Nina year. Funny enough, this is our third La Nina winter in a row. Typically, that means colder than normal for us. And even though we will see less snow as our climate continues to warm, that is the trend that we're going down. More and more of our precipitation is going to come down as rain all at once. We are going to see less snow across this province, and that has huge trickle-down effects. But we will still have these cold outbreaks and, you know, uh, uh, cold winters and, and these big snowfall events that we do get every once once in a while, but they will be become more anomalous. In the future, you know, these one, one in, you know, and, and I'm not exactly sure what a 20 centimeter event is for Vancouver, but they will become less and less likely. And, you know, we'll be telling our grandkids that we, you know, once had 20 centimeters of snow and they'll think that is crazy. You don't want to hear how much there was when I was young. <laughs> You're right. It's already changed. So they still happen, but on average, the climate is warming. Okay. Christy, over to you. Last winter, the extreme cold sparked record natural gas use across Saskatchewan. And then this year, the province experienced record-breaking power usage in July as residents were trying to cool their homes down. Are you seeing that trend continuing throughout next year? Well, I mean, yeah, I, if, if this fall and start to winter has been any indication, it's it's a season of wild swings. I mean, we've gone from one extreme to the other. And um, I, I think definitely for your summer months, um, more heat waves, more of those hot Julys that sends everyone to their basements and causes those AC units to sell out everywhere is is in the books. I mean, they, they predict longer, more intense heat waves in the future. Cold snaps, a little harder to uh, harder to pin down, but there is, um, there, we're still going to have our winters, right? You're, they're, they're still going to exist. You're, they're just going to be changing, um, being slightly warmer and, and more rain, as Johanna said, as opposed to snow. It just makes it really real on a personal level, you know? I mean, Climate change is such a big issue, and sometimes it can seem a little abstract, but it's something that's very concrete, and it was definitely something that we felt in the last year and and likely will in the next year, too. Now, um, Johanna, I know we're talking about this year, but I'm curious to know if the devastation of last year's heat dome and atmospheric river affect your reporting in this year at all. You know, I I really do uh, believe it has. I think, first of all... These relentless weather events that that we went through in BC, I think it it raised the science literacy for all of us. I think you know we no longer have to to convince people that it's happening. I think we're we're past that now. In the past, you know, twenty four months ha- have really uh, been the galvanizing moment for that tipping point. So now, in my reporting, I no longer you know have to do that convincing. It's well, how exactly is this one individual weather event being impacted by climate change? What are the chances uh, that this exact weather event will happen with higher likelihood in the future? And the other thing that is happening because of that is people want to know what they can do. They want to hear the solution, solutions-based stories. And I think what's really neat now is that we're hearing more about different entry points into the climate conversation from different people. You know, whatever you're interested in, if you're an artist, you're into music, coding, leadership, like there's a different way to get into climate change. And that's really exciting for me. And that's 
I, I want, you know, to continue to change the way that I help people to connect to climate change through well, those ways. You're speaking my language. I here. know I am. Yeah, <laughs> this is your jam. <laughs> so as, as though I, I let's just we, that's very positive what you were just mm-hmm. saying about how things have changed. Um, but I, uh, I want to get from all of you. Um, highlights of some good climate news from 2022 on the show today. What stands out from you? Christy, let's start with you. I've definitely been seeing readers and viewers about uh, wanting to know more and also wanting to make changes. And I do remember we did a story this summer of a woman, uh, her name was Melissa Penny, and she's in Edmonton, and she just created a biodiverse um, oasis in her backyard and just is it had tra- attracted you know about 90 species of birds to the area and have have has made it really really great for you know native plant species uh cushioning you know the critters that live in her yard and it's just it was just incredible and so nice to see someone doing something on such an individual level because um biodiversity is a real problem and and it's something that uh, we're all going to start to see and we're going to have to deal with and cities can be a, you know a little safe harbor for some in some cases and she really took that to heart and it was it was really lovely oh that's great news Mm -hmm. ryan what what about you really if there's another positive to take from this year is all of the innovation you're hearing about that's underway that folks are working on a story that i that really caught my eye uh, obviously with being on the coast uh here uh just in the past week was a, a significant breakthrough that a new sea salt battery has been developed that has four times the capacity of lithium um you know, uh, obviously that's it. Did, you, did I hear yes, that right? Yes, a sea salt battery. Um, uh, so you can uh, look that up. But um, so these are the types of things that are, to me are exciting that um, that I think the last couple of years really has has thrown us all headfirst into this. And now we're starting to to really talk about solutions and, and moving forward and how we're all going to be able to, to deal with this. And um, I think there's a lot of positive coming from that. Now, Johanna, I could say that, that the good news coming from you is your new show, Planet Wonder, on the CBC <laughs> News streaming service, Thank which you. I'm giving you another plug I know. for. <laughs> but Thank have you. you. <laughs> have you got another uh, good news story you want to highlight? You know, I, I, I think that I, really over the past couple of years, I mean, it's so late coming, but to really start to see the joining of Indigenous science with, with Western science. And when we talk about nature-based solutions, you know, finally turning to Indigenous community uh, communities and leaders. And I mean, it, again, we're, we're late. So that is so late coming, but that has been uh, really positive to see over the past couple of years. All right. Ending it on a, on a on optimistic note. Thanks so much to all three of you. I think we'll be gathering again in about a year. This is like my yearly therapy session. So <laughs> yes, <please. laughs> I know. I it's very nice to get it all in. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thanks all of you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the holidays are upon us. And we've been asking you whether you're doing anything differently this season with the climate in mind. Carmen Loisel in Edmonton emailed to say, I build a Christmas card tree on a living room wall. It began when my mom was in an extended care facility. She was really missing a tree in her room, but nothing standalone was permitted because other residents with dementia would often wander in and out of other residents' rooms and take things. So I built her a Christmas card tree and decorated it with garland and crumpled colored paper. She died in 2017, but I found this a great way to address decorating without taking away from the earth. CJ Martin from Oakville, Ontario has a long list of strategies. 
Think homemade gifts like wax poured into ramekins or jars to make candles, or being more intentional about holiday excursions to reduce needless travel and consumption. And a personally hand-delivered gift can eliminate the need for wrapping paper, CJ says. Lil McPherson in Nova Scotia wrote, We can minimize gift wrap waste using Sunday funnies, outdated maps, old calendars, or anything you want. Just imagine the forests we'll save for one year's wrapping. And then there's thrifting for Christmas, otherwise known as thriftmas. Here's what Angela Harvey in Cherryville, B.C. told CBC she did for her grandsons this year. My son has seven-year-old triplets, and he's like, Mom, please, no more stuff. So I decided that I was going to make a theme room downstairs when the kids come for Christmas. I got three used little pup tents for the kids to sleep in. On Facebook Marketplace, I got like a little fake fireplace. I bought a big scenery picture so it looks like outside, and I got three big stuffed bears. I'm not sending anything home with them. They'll have fun when they're here. And that is my gift to the kids. Oh, man, that is a great idea. And the best thing about it, Angela, is not only did you give them a place, you gave them your time, which is the best gift of all. We also heard from you on Instagram. You told us you're nixing the stocking stuffers, asking for fewer gifts, but more quality time and sending holiday cards with climate demands to elected officials. So as you can hear, several suggestions about reducing garbage and sending a message. But how much of a difference can individuals really make at this time of year? If we get gifts from other people that have used wrapping paper, then the best thing to do is to keep using and reusing and reusing and reusing that wrapping paper over and over and over again for as long as we possibly can. The more that we can reduce and reuse, the better for the environment. Myra Hurd is a professor of environmental studies at Queen's University and the author of Canada's Waste Flows. She says supporting local businesses and looking for products that use less or no packaging can make a difference. But here's the thing. The problem of trash during the holidays or year-round goes way beyond the consumer. Hurd says garbage from consumers makes up less than 3% of total waste made in Canada. The rest comes from industries involved in extracting resources or manufacturing goods, mostly for shipping. And Hurd says countries around the world are starting to nudge industry towards taking more responsibility. One of the things that the government can do is require, they can institute regulations, such as in Germany, that require businesses to innovate packaging design. So that would mean creating new forms of packaging that hopefully that that reduce the amount of packaging required. But then when packaging is required, that it be made out of more sustainable materials so that it's better for the environment. I guess that means the end to any more bubble packs, which would be a great thing as far as I'm concerned. So maybe that Instagrammer is on to something, writing Christmas cards to politicians to push for bigger systemic changes. And I wonder if they'll get a response. But no matter how much wrapping is tossed under the tree, I hope there isn't a wasted moment with friends and family. Happy holidays from us here at What on Earth.
And that's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Kiernan Green, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.